morning and welcome to Rising. Incredible show today, Robbie, no doubt. How was last week? Oh, it was great, but we missed you, of course, Ryan. We're glad to have you back with us. Missed you, too, filling in today for Brianna. That's right. She should be here tomorrow. Brianna will be here tomorrow, and, uh, you know, we never have a plan for more than one day at a time. (laughs) So, actually, to have a plan for the entire week feels like we're making progress. Daily AA meeting. But but Crystal Knight and Sam Godoldig will join us for panel and weighing in on the GOP shadow primary and who is pulling to the front of the pack with former President Donald Trump. Also, Jacob Goldstein will discuss the state of our economy and his new podcast, What's Your Problem? Now, over the Easter holiday weekend, at least four mass shootings were reported across the country. Two of the shootings happened in South Carolina, one in a nightclub and one in a mall. And early Sunday morning, a party full of minors was shot up in a Pittsburgh Airbnb, leaving two dead, and and those were under the age of 18. So the Pittsburgh shooting marks the third time in just nine days that gunfire has erupted during parties at Airbnb rentals. And so, Ryan, I don't know exactly what to make of this the for a while it was just the perception of crime rising mm-hmm. it was a perception not necessarily a fact but now right, it, it some, is some numbers were going one direction other numbers were going another direction right right but now there there is enough evidence to say that there's a general rise in violence in confrontation mm-hmm. in nasty unpleasant behavior and obviously this goes well beyond that shootings um what do you think this is i think part of it is pandemic sort mm-hmm. of social frustration. People have forgotten how to behave toward one another and disputes escalate into like what you see on airplanes and that kind of thing. And then, you know, confrontations that become violent, that become shootings. Uh, It's like we've forgotten how to just cool it. Just right. Yeah. Right. And there's there's been this tendency among some in the media and the public to say, well, it must be bail reform. There's there was all this talk about criminal justice reform. Uh, there were the George Floyd protests, and then boom, all of a sudden we have an up, uptick in crime. There must be some connection there. But it just doesn't hold up because yeah. you're seeing it all over the world. You, you haven't seen bail reform all over the world. And you're seeing it play out in areas that did not do any police. Most places didn't do right. police reform or criminal justice reform. And you're seeing the same trends around violence. And I think you're right that it's more spiritual yeah. In a way. Well, and it's, it's, in some cases, it's people who've not been incarcerated before. It's not that they're getting released or something. Right. It's teens are behaving badly. There were, these, there were kidnappings of dogs in D.C. last yes. week. Did you miss this? You were on oh, vacation. I, saw, but I, I still saw that because uh, everybody was looking for the little dog. They, they found the dog. They found one, there's another one they haven't found yet, but they found the main, the main the dog that was the subject of all the attention. Again, not that this is the most consequential crime ever, but my so understanding is this is yeah. kids that just took... Someone was just walking their dog, and they gra- they took this person's dog at gunpoint. Yeah. And, like, that's this is weird behavior. Also, I didn't know about this whole new thing where you book an Airbnb and then throw a party in it. Oh, yeah? It's like... Uh, it's a good idea. Yeah. When, you know, when we were in high school, people had to wait until somebody's parents... Went out of town. Went out of town. Or there were two, two occasions where a house had been on the market... Uh, for like a year, right, and it was so you, clear. So that and no one's checking in. We just go in there, but this whole idea where I guess you have to get, have how, what do you get an eighteen year old who books it for you or something like. The problem with something. that though, I don't. You can only do, you can only pull that trick once per person yeah. because yes. then the Airbnb host gives you a horrible rating or flags you for Airbnb the place is completely and, and, and trash. You can't, There's bullet yeah. holes all over the. I guess you just house. get one of your friends to do it next time or something. At some point, I, I, yeah, I guess at some point you're going to run out of. 
18-year-olds, but maybe not because you can have the high school seniors do it for you. But yeah, apparently this this started as a basically a, a altercation between two of the kids at the party, and it was just crossfire that ended up just lacing bullets all through the house. Really horrible. And so turning to what's happening in Ukraine, Ukrainian fighters in Mariupol ignored a surrender or die ultimatum from Russia yesterday and held out against Russia's capture of the port city. Moscow has said its forces have almost completely seized the city during its, va- its invasion. President Zelensky sat down with Jake Tapper and explained why the country was unwilling to surrender. Ukraine and the people of our state are absolutely clear. We don't want anyone else's territory, and we are not going to give up our own. Meanwhile, the Ukrainian foreign minister has said that negotiations between the two countries have come to a stalemate and that the situation in Mariupol may be a, quote, red line in the path of peace talks. And so there are, what, about 2,500 remaining defenders in, in Mariupol. They were given until last night, 11 p.m. last night or so, to surrender. Uh, the foreign minister had said that the Russian offer to surrender wasn't actually serious. They didn't mark out a way for it to be possible, and they continued shelling the entire time. Mm. And, they th- and they said it was just some type of a trap and a publicity stunt. But on the other hand, y- y- Ukraine, I think, and tell me what you think of this, they have to keep saying that they're not going to give up any territory. Mm-hmm. If they start to say that at the same time that they're asking for constant flows of weapons in, then that undermines that request for weapons. And so it feels like as long as the U.S. is pledging basically unlimited supply of weapons, then Ukraine will continue to say that they're not giving up any territory, whether or not that actually represents a kind of an organic public opinion in Ukraine. Now, I... It I suspect seems it like does represent public opinion It does opinion seem like there's Ukraine, so, much, so much nationalist furor... They seem like they want to fight. (laughs) I mean, that's the sentiment you're getting. Zelensky has total support of the people. They don't want to give up. They don't want to give up any territory. They're willing to fight this viciously and this savagely and this, you know, successfully for, I mean, not successfully because they are slowly being destroyed, but they've made life much more difficult for Russia than they expected. That's what they want to do. It is their country. You know, it's hard because... We want to get to a peaceful solution. We yeah. we want this to end. Um, that a lot of that is we, on Russia. Right. Well, right. <laughs> I want this right. to end. Yes. <laughs> you know, liberal-minded people of a, right. of a of a non-war making non psychopath yeah, non psychopaths would like this to end. Yeah. Uh, a lot of that is on Russia. Some of that's on Ukraine, but it's also predominantly Russia is the invading force. So how do you empower both sides to reach a diplomatic solution, which will involve, which I've said last week, right, this, the, the Coke Network said this, and we got branded as pro-Putin puppet people for saying that whatever solution will result is going to be Ukraine probably losing something so that Russia doesn't, because Russia's not, Putin's not going to walk away from this a total loser right. because he's just not going to walk away if that's right. the the condition under which he would have to. So we have to come to something, and that, you know, that might involve loss of, of, of well, Crimea, right. Crimea right. for sure. Right, but. exactly. He already had de facto control of Crimea right. and quasi-de facto control, whatever you want to call it, of significant portions of Donbass. Right. So it's not as if he's going to walk away and hand all of that back. Right. right. So, so therefore— and the, people, and the people of Crimea want 
are, are, have more affinity for Russia. They want to be part of Russia. But no uprising, Fine. that kind of thing. Fine. Right. Yeah. That there should be there's a right there's a right to self determination to some extent that you know transcends right. whatever arbitrary national boundaries are drawn by people onto a map. So right. I get that. Right. Those move. Yeah. Right. And so I, it also raises the question of how long. First of all, the U.S. military is not some type of uh, you know social work organization that is here to just kind of express your your values onto the world. Right. Like that's that's just not what it does. Maybe you want it. Maybe people want it to do that, but that's not that's not what it does. But let's pretend for a second that it did. How long would the would the West's obligation to continue to arm Ukraine exist in a, in a world where the fighting just seems to be endless? L- let's say, for, an- for instance, that say Venezuela invades Colombia, mm-hmm. right? And we're, the whole world stands with Colombia. Colombia, nice, nice democracy they've built in the, in the wreckage of, that, of their narco wars. And, but, but how much of our business is that? Like, yeah. for how long do we say we're going to continue supplying weapons to Colombia so that they can t- continue to have a, a war with Venezuela to I reclaim the, the territory of... I get that. This feels different because Russia makes it different, because Russia is a superpower, a superpower among superpowers, a, a major rival of ours. Uh, what Russia does and what China does matter more than what Venezuela does or what Afghanistan that, right. does or even Iran or in any other, you know, smaller. We have a more, uh, a larger conflict with it. We don't want to have conflict. I, right. don't, I don't want, again, who's we? I don't want us to have conflict right. with these countries, but, but we do. And, uh, and, 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 you know, we, you can debate who started it, who caused it, whatever. Russia right. has you know, meddled in our internal elections process. I mean, not very successfully, not, mm. not, collu- not <laughs> in assistance with the Trump campaign, but they did, they did try. Mm. So th- there's, there's some history of conflict there, and there's some reason. Like, we don't want them to slowly gobble up every country in Europe. And, th- and that point, that the fact that it's Russia being the aggressor, uh, I think that's key because it really exposes the real dynamic. In other words, right. we're not doing this for Ukraine. We're doing it against Russia because it is Russia. Right. And we need to remember that, that the U.S. acts in its, in its national interest, and it happens to currently believe that it's in its national interest to continue to arm Ukraine. Right. But that's what it is. And, think, and we should just be clear-eyed about what it is. I think, and I think it's important to recognize if you, if you commit aggression, if you're the attacker, mm-hmm. right. then th- anyone has the right to to defend who you're attacking against you. It's not an obligation. Like if you, you know, if you start beating up somebody over there, you're the aggressor and I can intervene to stop you. I'm not obligated to intervene to stop you maybe in some kind of Christian ethics or something, but just in a just in a right. so I don't no have na- to do something. NATO level, but I right. can if it's because you started right. so that's the situation. So we we can do something, we have to think about whether it is wise to do something. Yeah. Well, Zelensky also told Tapper that he expects Biden to visit the Ukraine soon. Do you want President Biden to come here? Yes. Is yes. There, are there any plans for him to come? I think he will. You think I he think, will? I think he will. And I think he... But it's, it's, no, no, I mean, it, it's his decision, of course, and, and about the safety situation, it depends. I mean, that, but I think, I think he's the leader of the United States, and that, that, that's why he should come here to see. 
And during Easter service Sunday, the Pope called the holiday the Easter of War and called for peace in Ukraine, reciting a line from Einstein's 1955 manifesto where he warned against the risks of nuclear war. The Pope read, quote, shall we put an end to the human race or shall mankind renounce war? Let's now, not put an end to the human race, right? Let's not, let's not do it. Quoting Einstein, we're getting religion and science together. We're, uh, we're yeah. uh, no, no Galileo treatment for, yeah, it was good. Good. There you go. Didn't he make the first electric vehicle or try to? The Pope? Uh, no, Einstein. <laughs> Did he? I don't know. <laughs> no, ask, ask Musk. Anyway, we'll tell you what's on our radar is up next. What's on your radar, Ryan? Well, today I want to talk a little bit about the unfortunate fate of one Mr. Cody Reynolds of Oregon. So Cody had a dream. He wanted to become a politician. In 2012, he ran for Congress in Oregon's first congressional district as part of the, quote, progressive party. He got less than 5% of the vote, but he didn't give up. In 2014, he ran as a Green Party candidate and did a little bit worse than he'd done the cycle before. In 2016, he upped the ante and ran for Senate, this time winning the Independent Party nomination, but he lost to Ron Wyden in the general, getting just 3% of the vote. In 2018, Cody switched districts, this time running in Oregon's second, but he dropped out before votes were cast. It was after that race that Cody realized he needed a different game plan. What he needed was money. And so Cody set out to become a crypto millionaire so he could buy himself a house seat. And that's not me guessing about his motivation. That's basically what he told a local paper, the Willamette Week, quote, Reynolds says, after failing to make a dent in previous elections, he set out to accumulate enough wealth to self-fund his next campaign and did so through early and timely investments in cryptocurrencies. He's changed his minor party affiliation to Democrat and pledges to spend enough to reach every voter in his district. Reynolds said, quote, before I naively thought I could do that with ideas and passion, but the political system is no longer a marketplace of ideas. It's also about reach and money. And hey, good for Cody Reynolds. The American dream to get hold of enough crypto to buy a house seat is alive and well. He's now a candidate for Oregon's 6th Congressional District, and he has pumped $2.5 million of his new crypto wealth into the race. There was one flaw in the plan, though. If you're trying to buy a seat, you better be the highest bidder. And in Oregon, Cody found himself up against a bigger gorilla. And if you're into crypto, you know who he is. He's known as SBF, Sam Bankman-Fried. Forbes puts his wealth as of today at $24 billion, almost all of it connected to crypto. He created a super PAC called Protect Our Future, which says that its focus is pandemic preparedness, but it teams up with other crypto-backed PACs and is starting to reshape congressional primaries. That kind of crypto money is what crypto bro Cody Reynolds never saw coming. So far, Protect Our Future PAC has spent some $6 million and counting to support a guy named Carrick Flynn in the Democratic primary against Cody Reynolds. Sam Bankman-Fried's brother runs the PAC and also runs an organization called Guardian Against Pandemics, according to Flynn's LinkedIn, a month after Gabriel Bankman-Fried became director of the anti-pandemic organization. Flynn got a contract as a, quote, disaster prevention specialist and moved back from Washington, D.C. to Oregon. So local reporters also sussed out that Flynn has almost never voted in Oregon, and even though he was living there in 2020, he skipped that election. 
And to be clear, $6 million in a Democratic primary that almost nobody is paying attention to is an astounding amount of money. But that's not all. Out of nowhere, the House Majority PAC, which is the House Democratic Super PAC, jumped into the race with a million dollars backing Flynn. Mind you, it's not just Cody Reynolds who's in the race. There are three viable progressive women of color all in the race, and now the Congressional Hispanic Caucus and Congressional Black Caucus are both livid at the party for intervening. The candidates released a rare joint statement basically calling the whole arrangement corrupt, saying, with so much needed to defend the House, how can they afford involvement in a primary? Why is this happening? Where is this money coming from? And what does its source want in exchange? Anyway, it's pretty clear where the money came from. Oregon's 6th Congressional District might be the most absurd display of crypto money sloshing around in our politics, but it's not at all the only one. SBF's PAC recently threw in a million dollars to take out Nina Turner in her rematch against Chantel Brown in Ohio. One of the most outspoken Democratic critics of crypto in Congress is California Representative Brad Sherman. This cycle, he's being challenged by Erika Rhodes, who's a school teacher organizing her entire campaign around the defense of crypto and opposition to Sherman's critical approach. And she has drawn support from crypto advocates. Now, whether the spending against Sherman will unseat him or not, other incumbents and challengers are observing the dynamic. Opposition to crypto risks an onslaught from the industry, and support of crypto invites a tsunami of supportive spending. Yet the reverse is not true. Opposition to crypto is not rewarded by any organized constituency, and support of crypto is not punished by any organized constituency. That type of, that type of asymmetry has long shaped niche policy debates in Washington. Supporters of agricultural subsidies, for instance, spend heavily to get their issue noticed, but there is little in the way of organized opposition to those subsidies because nobody cares enough, so the subsidies just sail through Congress. Now, some candidates are simply saying yes to the crypto agenda so they can focus on things they actually care about. Uh, Jasmine Crockett, for instance, running in a Texas district to replace Representative Eddie Bernice Johnson, had no history as either an outspoken advocate for crypto or an opponent of, of regulation. But facing the question in the campaign, she sided with the policy positions favored by crypto PACs. The two major crypto super PACs came in with a million dollars each, helping to put her over the top. And so I was talking to Dave Dane, who heads the, runs the American Prospect, and he was like, man, so nice when it was when it was just corporate dark money that was sloshing through these campaigns. You just you kind of knew what you were you didn't know exactly what you were fighting against, but you sort of knew. This is just a a wrench thrown into the whole thing. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, Nina Turner facing a million dollars from a crypto pack. Well, but wait a minute, Ryan. I mean, I like crypto. They can they can just adopt friendlier. At, uh, I, I I think that would be correct to adopt a friendlier approach to crypto. Uh, are not demonized and be terrified of it, as some in the Democratic Party seem to be, as Elizabeth Warren, for instance, seems to be. Uh, maybe it needs some kind of regulation or some kind of something, but it's, uh, it's a pr I think it's a promising technology that is the future, and there's no need to be relentlessly terrified of it. I mean, certainly a lot of them are just going to take that approach. Yeah. They're going to say, all right, look, this is like the 17th highest thing that I care about. Mm -hmm. And if I just have to fill out this questionnaire and answer all these things this way, but where does that stop? Like if, if you have this, you know, just massive amount of wealth just sitting in the sidelines that just, that's just created every day, 
Uh, do they just get whatever they want out of the political system? Is that how, is that how this ultimately shakes out? I mean, probably. <laughs> in, re- in reality, probably. Yeah. Um, no, I don't know. You, you and I disagree. Or I, I tend to disagree with, I don't know how much, you, you can't just buy the election. It's, As Cody Reynolds is right. finding out. <laughs> right. It, it, it's not just like, oh, I have more money or I have this pile of cash. I'm set. Does, you know, Hillary Clinton raised more money than Donald Trump and didn't spend more and didn't matter. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I, I'm never quite as concerned, I think, as my friends on the left about this sort of thing, because at the, at the end of the day, no amount of money can save a doomed campaign or a doomed candidate or someone who's not resonating with the voters or someone who is just utterly disliked or has completely the wrong ideas. And we'll, we'll see in Oregon 6, because it's, it's interesting, because you've got, you, you now, he's spent so much money, it might have been smarter to spend $3 million, because with the $6 million plus then the extra million, and it's probably by... By the time this is airing, it's probably $7 million. Mm-hmm. Like There's so many canvassers that are being paid by Carrick Flynn or are being paid by the Super PAC. There's so many ads, so many mailers. The, the numbers are just flying. Uh, throw in the million. Now there's all sorts of uh, public attention to it in the district. The question is whether the voters are paying enough attention to, to catch on to this or whether they're just going to see the ads and be like, oh, I know that name. And then when they go in, they check right. that name. In some ways... It's easier to buy a primary than it is to buy the general election. Right. And so this is a D plus six race, which means basically Democrats should win it, but could lose it. And I think Republicans are hoping, Hmm. definitely, that the crypto candidate, one of the two crypto candidates, survives so that they can then run their entire general election campaign saying that this was a special interest, you know, that somebody just came in and is trying to buy this seat. Uh, whereas the the other uh, candidates are fairly typical Democrats, like a state senator, a, a county commissioner, that's, that sort of thing that would probably be harder for Republicans to beat. And so I, in, in these sleepy primaries where there's very little media coverage in general, you in some ways you kind of can buy them if you have enough money, I think. Mm-hmm. But you can't, maybe you can't buy the general. Yeah, well, we'll see. Yeah, we'll come back in November and watch that. It'll be interesting. They spend $20 million to win the primary and then lose it to the Republicans. <laughs> get, like, right, get knocked out in this wave that is coming. Yeah. Oof. It's going to be, it's a big, it's gonna it's a be an one. interesting November. It's a big one. Anyway, looking forward to what's on your radar. Robbie, what's on your radar? Well, Elon Musk offered to buy the entirety of Twitter, turn it into a private company, and correct what he feels is a waning commitment to the principles of free and open speech has drawn both praise and criticism. So many people who share Elon's dissatisfaction with the platform, including Republicans and conservatives who think it discriminates against provocative right-wing speech, well, they're eager to see Twitter in his hands. At the same time, those in the pro-establishment media camp are worried that the Elon approach would mean more so-called harassment and disinformation on the platform. Twitter's board has given every indication that it sides with the traditional gatekeepers of information and is inclined to fend off Musk's bid. So the company adopted a poison pill approach late last week. This is a well-known corporate tactic intended to thwart a potential buyer. So in this specific case, Twitter would flood the market with additional shares available for sale if Musk's stake in the company reaches 15%. Effectively, Twitter plans to dilute his stake making it much harder for him to reach the 51% 
threshold. And if Twitter is ultimately interested in Musk's offer, well, this gives them more time to consider it and time as well to look for other potential buyers. So we have a pretty good idea what the board of Twitter wants. It wants to hold onto its power. Their offer to make Musk a member of the board was probably one born of a desire to control and quiet him. As a board member, he would have an obligation to the company not to disparage it publicly, and thus he would no longer be able to tweet his thoughts about ways in which Twitter should be different. But that brings him to the real subject of this radar. What exactly does Elon Musk want to change about Twitter? If we know that, then we don't have to get into the thornier questions of which group of people do you like better, which governance structure do you think is preferable. Instead, we can just quite literally evaluate the individual ideas for improving the platform. Now, fortunately, Musk has gone into some of those ideas during a TED interview late last week. Let's watch. Well, I think it's very important for uh, there to be an inclusive arena for free speech, uh, where all, <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Um, Twitter has become kind of the de facto town square, um, so uh, it, it, it's just really important that people have the, both the, uh, the reality and the perception uh, that they are able to speak freely within the bounds of the law. Um, and, you know, so one of the things that I believe Twitter should do is open source the algorithm um, and make any changes uh, to people's tweets, you know, if they're emphasized or de-emphasized, uh, that action should be made apparent so you can, anyone can see that that action has been taken. So there's, there's no sort of behind-the-scenes um, manipulation, either algorithmically or manually. Later on in that interview, Musk articulated support for a feature many people have demanded, a Twitter edit button, so you could alter a tweet after you send it. Facebook has this function, so it's workable in some sense. There's a little note that appears showing that you edited it. Musk also talked about removing ads for premium subscribers, providing other perks for those willing to pay more. He also wants to eliminate spam and scam bots, and he's even given some indication he thinks some tweets should be longer, should not be bound by the character count. Now, in my view, many of these ideas, they have merit. More transparency would be a massive improvement. It's critical for the people to know why and how the platform decides to reward and punish certain tweets. So the ultimate goal should be to devolve content moderation to users. Instead of Twitter deciding for you what it thinks you ought to see, what it thinks is dangerous, or what it thinks is true, or what it thinks is safe, the platform should give individual users more options to curate their Twitter experience so that they see less of what they don't want to see, more of what they do want to see. Now, as far as I can tell from listening to him, Elon Musk seems to share that vision. Yet many progressive critics of Musk are acting as if him taking control of the company would be the most horrible thing to ever happen, literally. Here's a salon writer saying Elon Musk's takeover could cause a death blow to the free world. Now, Axios says that Musk has gone into full goblin mode and is acting like a supervillain. Here's that. And then, of course, CUNY journalism professor Jeff Jarvis implied that Musk's takeover is like the beginning of World War II. That's how desperate and scared these people are, just because of the mere possibility that a wealthy person with somewhat different politics and a somewhat more favorable disposition to unfiltered speech is going to tweak their favorite toy. And that was just a couple of the examples of the just ridiculous freakout over Elon Musk from people of that ideological uh, bent last week. But I'm reading his ideas and thinking, like, okay, this sounds pretty good. Maybe it won't be, but these sound like good ideas to me. 
So I don't know what the, I don't know what the freakout's over. Right. And is the left's idea that shareholder kind of publicly traded capitalism is the only perfect way to run Twitter? Mm-hmm. Like they're like Twitter as a publicly traded company is kind of forced into dri- you know driving revenue every day, every quarter. Like that's their that's their legal mandate, and so they then have to then you know ramp up engagement. They have to do these you know they have to they have to do private algorithms that that create as much toxicity as possible to try to keep people at each other's throats because if you have your Engagement numbers, you know, if they dip down in your quarterly earnings call, then your stock price is going to fall. And so, you know, if some of Musk's reforms are going to reduce some of the toxicity, actually, on on the platform, that actually could be counterproductive to the share price. And therefore, you could have a shareholder revolt and say, you can't do this. We actually need just people on here killing each other all day long. Uh, If, you know, if you want to introduce something that allows people to, you know, curate a less toxic experience, that too could then lead to some less, enga- less engagement and lead to the, the stock price drop. And I, I think that is the solution. That is the, rather than trying to decide what all users must see or deal with in terms of harassment, misinformation, what the platform considers misinformation, what even is misinformation, let users set their own preferences to say, here is the threshold of what I am willing to see or what Twitter thinks is bad for me. I want to see it all. And some people might say, no, if Twitter thinks that this is bad, something I don't want to see, then I'm fine, Twitter not showing it to me. Or I don't show me anyone who follows these. Pre-. Like That should just, should just devolve to the user. And that way we don't have to have this incredibly fraught, incredibly national political conversation over what Twitter's content moderation policy should be a very weird subject of debate for like a national political system but that is our that like that's what we're arguing about in some sense all of our political conversation is just about what you should be allowed to see on social media which is stupid and i also think progressives need to do some self-reflection on how they can on the one hand constantly talk about how twitter is a hell site Mm-hmm. Absolutely the worst place on earth, making the world a worse place. But don't do anything differently. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. It must be defended at all costs. It's Weimar Germany. Right. All these people like, saying, yeah, this the is the, this is the, the world's going to end if they change something about Twitter uh, a little bit. This hell site that we all say we hate, if you change one thing, if, you, if right. Elon Musk uh, implements these reforms. Now, I, do I, addicts like, worried their, their drug is going to be it, taken. It does feel yeah. like an abusive relationship in, yeah. some, in some ways, like yeah. just clinging to it. Uh, and, and now, do I trust that Elon Musk is actually going to kind of open up the algorithm? I, not necessarily, but I like that he's made the promise. I don't know what I don't know how you can hold it to him if he takes it private. I hold him to it, but yeah, that would be a good thing. Like, open up the algorithm, show people what you're doing in order to manipulate. Wouldn't be showing me because I can't understand an algorithm, but somebody that I trust <laughs> will write about it, and I'll be able to understand right. that. So. Those, I mean, and also the trajectory that it's on is not a good one. So it, it's going to destroy itself if it continues along this path. And we've talked before that it basically today would be almost impossible to create a social media platform that will have all the different tribes on mm-hmm. it. That's not like you, you had your opportunity to create that. The ones that exist are the ones that we've got. And if those, if those go away and if those become just tribal areas, 
that's it. Like we're not going to have a town square. And so it, it is worth trying to keep it. Although my, my colleague at Reason, uh, Liz Wolf, who we've had on the show before, she observed that Twitter is really only a town square in the sense that it's the place I go to watch someone burned at the stake. <laughs> Which that's it's what the town square is for. town square is long before. All right, our rising panel will join us next and stick around for that. President Biden's rocky first term and flatlining poll numbers have some GOP presidential hopefuls switching into full gear with no signs of letting up before 2024. This is according to new reporting from The Hill's Max Greenwood. Former Vice President Mike Pence has recently ramped up public appearances, even traveling to Ukraine last month to meet with refugees at the Polish border. Meanwhile, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has recently sought the spotlight on a number of issues important to the GOP base, including critical race theory in schools, abortion, and others. Joining us now to weigh in is our rising panel. Julia Manchester is a political reporter for The Hill, and Sam Gedoldig is a partner at CGCN Group. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thanks. So, Sam, I'll, I'll start with you. Uh, you know, what do you make of, I don't know, Mike Pence's chances at this point of doing, any, doing himself any good, you know, among the Republican base, you know, given the perception that the Trump wing has that he, you know, betrayed the president? I, I, I find it hard to believe he can ever possibly recover from being tarred like that. But what do you think? I think it's going to be an uphill battle for him, but, um, you know, he's going to be able to make a pretty strong case that he was as loyal and hardworking of a VP for, you know, four years. Um, a lot of it will depend on Trump and if he's irritated or not irritated, if he's running, if he's not running. Um, but, you know, Pence is going to make his arguments. He He's the known commodity in Republican primary politics. And, uh, viewed as a strong conservative, viewed as someone that um, has been with the movement for a long, long time. So I, I think he's going to have a case to make. I, a lot of it will depend on you know outside factors that are well beyond anything he could control. Um, and it'll be interesting to see where our, you know primary voters are uh, you know three years after Trump left office. You know the assumption is that they're they're all there and they will continue to be and they won't they won't waver we're going to find out it's coming real real soon and i'm curious for sam's take on this too but julia to me the the only shot that democrats seem to have would be complete republican overreach uh that you know because it's all it's already what uh, april and they're going nuts like how are they gonna like how are they gonna keep themselves under control between now and november this weekend they were out uh protesting disney making themselves kind of look to me, it's ridiculous. Right. I mean, I think this is a strategy you're really going to see play out in the primaries. You know, when you're protesting Disney, for example, really honing in on those culturally conservative issues. I think we have seen Republican candidates uh, sort of address this and walk a fine line. We saw Glenn Youngkin very much master this in Virginia, addressing those cultural issues, but at the same time making them seem like kitchen table issues, for example. Protesting Disney may work in 
Florida or Central Florida if you're running for um, Senate or a House race there. But in a primary, a national primary, I would think that a lot of Republicans want to focus on other issues like inflation, for example. That being said, you still have former President Trump talking about the 2020 election, election fraud. And those aren't, you know, maybe that riles up some members of the Republican base, his core base of supporters. But I don't know how salient that continues to be going into 2022, even 2023. I think with Trump in particular, we, we could see the table set for the primary topics these uh, candidates talk about this year um, and even in you know coming years ahead of 2024 through what Trump talks about and really through what sticks. Um, we don't know if Trump's necessarily in all of his endorsements this cycle if he's going to be successful. So we'll have to wait and see there. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that channeling the culture battle has done many Republicans a lot of good in the last year or two, that the new cultural battle over what's being taught in schools, that kind of stuff, you know, it's helped DeSantis's star um, uh, rise very, very high. Uh, you know, what, Sam, what, what advice, you know, would you give to, to someone like a DeSantis who's really looking to you know, kind of seal the deal, it, it, this ascendancy that now I don't know that he could actually I think it's going to be interesting if he if it actually ends up Trump runs and he's going to confront him that, you know, that's one scenario. Uh, if there's no Trump in the race, DeSantis's path is obviously much, much clearer. But, you know, how, how does he navigate this kind of thing? Yeah, you know, um, uh, you, you hit the nail on the head with Trump. Um, if Trump is throwing rocks at him, it, it's going to be a lot harder than if he's either neutral or, or supportive. So, you know, is Trump running? No one knows the answer. Uh, and then if he's if he's not saying anything, can DeSantis do his thing without, you know, kind of aggravating Trump and having there be some type of rivalry pop up that would just diminish DeSantis's kind of cleaner shot at doing what he's doing in Florida and kind of uh, promoting himself nationally at the same time. So. I, I do think Trump is is the wild card there. He one thing Trump, you know, remember he did it in 2016 to Rubio and to Jeb Bush and you know Christie. He just tears down these these primary opponents so effectively. And uh, I think the lesson learned from 16 is you know pack a lunch if you're going to get in a fight with Trump. It doesn't it doesn't end up well if you're running in a primary against him or not with his support. So I, I think the sweet spots to try to find out the best way to either get him neutral or, or get him mildly or, or even strongly supportive. Do we have that, uh, that Roger Stone video where he's talking to Trump about DeSantis? Do we have that? Basically, Roger Stone was down at uh, hanging out with Trump. Julia, did you see this? Uh, <laughs> and they, they, they talk. He's like, hey, I'll see you later. And Roger Stone, the captured on video, saying something like, uh, just watch out for Ron DeSantis. He's a real piece of... Mm. <laughs> yeah. uh, so do you think that that reflects a real sense in the Trump camp of a deep rivalry with DeSantis? Or is this just Roger Stone 
play, playing out some internal Florida rivalry that he's got right. and, and kind of reinserting himself into the conversation? Or is it some of both? I think it's the question as to how deep the rivalry is. We have heard several reports surfacing from the Trump and DeSantis camps about, you know, this potential feeling of competitiveness between the two. Now, both sides very much trying to push that aside, deny it, saying everything's fine, no trouble in paradise. But look, Ron DeSantis is someone who really benefited from President Trump's brand, very much tied himself to the president when he ran for governor in 2018. Stylistically, he's very similar to the former president. So, you know, in a way, you could say that President Trump sort of had a hand in making Ron DeSantis's mm-hmm. political success, even in the lockdowns in 2020, when, you know, Florida took so long to do a so-called stay-at-home order. DeSantis was waiting for direction from the White House on that. So he's been following in Trump's footsteps for so long. And now that he appears to be eclipsing him potentially in some spots, not as much in polling, but he's inching closer and closer. I think that has a lot of eyebrows raised. And in Florida, look, Florida is the center of the GOP universe right now. You have Ron DeSantis, arguably the most popular Republican governor right now. And then you have Donald Trump living in Mar-a-Lago. So I think there's a lot of um, people who are torn in that state right now as to where to put their loyalties. Sam, how much do these Trump endorsements uh, matter? Because probably they don't matter that much to the, I don't know, the primary voters or, you know, people not highly attuned to politics. But if the Trump endorsed candidates, so Trump recently endorsed Dr. Oz in the Pennsylvania Senate race, and he just over the weekend, or just on Friday, I think, endorsed J.D. Vance, who is in this uh, Republican primary in the, for the Ohio Senate seat, a very competitive primary that, he, that Vance is not necessarily, Vance being the hillbilly elegy author, kind of once a never-Trumper, totally repudiated that ideology. Trump actually referenced the fact that J.D. Vance has said um, not kind things about him in the past, but now he gets it, so he's good. Uh, up against uh, Josh Mandel, I believe the other candidate, some other candidates, uh, who's also a hardline uh, Trump person. So it's not clear that that Vance will win, but he he very well might. And perhaps the Trump endorsement puts him over the edge. But does it matter to sort of political, you know, insider people, you know, the people deciding who they're going to line up behind if these Trump endorsements don't work, don't get these candidates um, over uh, over the edge. Does that does he look you know vulnerable or, or challengeable then? Yeah, I, I think um, the, certainly the people that get the Trump endorsement want it badly. You know, Vance I think is in the mid the mid kind of range with the with polling in, in the state of Ohio in the Republican primary right now. I think Vance is hopeful that this endorsement will propel him to kind of you know the the top of the uh, of the of the uh, Republican primary and, and, you know, knock off Mandel and some of the other candidates that are running. He did it with Oz in Pennsylvania. Uh, my sense is the endorsements are nice things for these candidates to have. Um, Trump, I, I give him some credit. You know, he's taken chances with, with candidates that are not, you know, at, not front runners. It doesn't look like they're obvious winners. So um, I, I think for that reason, it doesn't necessarily hurt him or his credibility if those candidates, you know, if Vance stays at fourth place after or moves up to third or second, you know, then Trump can say the endorsement helped. He was just, you know, a candidate that couldn't catch fire or whatever. I don't think Trump will have to, will care enough to have to explain why, you know, the endorsement didn't work. Uh, I, I think when Trump runs, 
runs in a primary, those voters are very loyal to him. And, and maybe maybe they view an, an endorsement of another candidate as one thing, but but sticking with Trump in a Republican primary is quite another. So uh, we're going to find all this stuff out. You know, I don't think anyone's an expert on any of this stuff. And, you know, it's, it's going to be really interesting to watch just like 2016 was. And uh, I'm kind of looking forward to seeing what happens. My favorite line on this from Trump was recently he was down in Georgia at a rally for Purdue, who he endorsed for governor. And he said, you know, David, you better you better win or else I just wasted like my entire day down here. <laughs> <laughs> says it like it is. Just says it like it is. Classic Trump. Uh, Sam, Julia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And we'll have more rising right after this. According to Goldman Sachs, the U.S. could be headed for another recession, saying the Federal Reserve will have a hard time cooling inflation. According to reporting by Bloomberg, Goldman puts the odds of this happening at 35 percent. Unemployment is down, but with inflation climbing to almost 9 percent in March, consumers continue to feel it in their pockets. Meanwhile, the Federal Reserve is grappling with tightening the U.S.'s monetary policy in hopes of bringing inflation down to 2 percent and capping it. Here to talk about the Fed's strategy is Jacob Goldstein, journalist and author of Money, the True Story of a Made-Up Thing. Jacob, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So, you know, how do you feel about this diagnosis? Should we be uh, all that concerned? I mean, yeah. Yeah, it seems reasonable <laughs> to be concerned. Inflation is really high. Uh, you know, the Fed's uh, key interest rate is really low. Traditionally, uh, when the Fed has, you know, tried to raise interest rates to catch up with inflation, they have induced a recession. So 35 percent in the next couple of years seems like, sure, that seems totally plausible. Where, where does that 65 percent come, come from? Because <laughs> right. I mean, I hear you like 35 percent. I'll take those odds. Great. Only a one in three chance. Great. Sounds good to me. And meanwhile, they're they're trying to tame inflation using the tool that they've used over the last, you know, 50 to 70 years, tightening monetary policy, increasing un unemployment, basically slowing down investment. But what does that have to do with the price of oil coming out of Saudi Arabia? What does it have to do with, you know, the wheat supply around the country, the other commodity shocks? What does that have to do with the supply chain snarls and the labor shortages that have really driven so much of inflation? In other words, why do they think that monkeying around with the interest rate is going to help with any of those problems? Yeah, well, it's a fair question. I mean, you know, to state the semi-obvious, right, uh, inflation is about the relationship between supply and demand. So for all the reasons you alluded to, uh, supply has been somewhat constrained. But, you know, like people talk about the supply chain problems, it's important to point out that uh, demand for goods in the U.S. is really high, right? It's not like the supply chain is broken so we can't buy as much stuff as we used to. We're buying more goods than ever. It's mm -hmm. simply that the supply chain can't grow fast enough. So, in fact, we do have really high demand, right? It's not just these weird supply, janky, pandemic things. It is, in fact, that demand is quite high. So raising interest rates should bring down demand. So that should do part of it. But, of course, uh, oil prices are this huge Thing. Certainly politically, I think they're disproportionately important, right? People see the price of gas in a way that they don't see the price of, say, their health care. And it has this huge psychological effect. So clearly oil, the Fed can't, you know, get more oil out of the ground. They're not going to fix that. Yeah, it, it is, you know, over the over the long haul, you know, if, if so if people stop spending 
Uh, but, but, but does you know will the will the issues in the supply chain, you know, c can those kinks be ironed out, or are they so kind of you know fundamental that they're just totally unprepared to handle how much demand there is that that's just going to be a problem like you know for the next I don't know five, 10, 20 years because you you can't, we just have so overwhelmed that system. I mean, I think that system is pretty strong, right? Like the flip side of that question is we had a giant pandemic and bought more stuff than ever. And we are able to get most of that stuff, right? We're still getting more stuff than ever. So I feel like the supply chain is like low on the list of worries. Like oil is a bigger worry. I mean, inducing a recession is a bigger worry, but the supply chain seems remarkably resilient to me. And you know, going back to the, the theme of your book, Money, the you know, the made up problem. Sri Lanka, uh, you know, according to credit agencies, is now kind of in the throes of a default. People are saying that this is the first kind of uh, Ukraine-Russia related, you know, war related default that we've seen, but it certainly won't be the last. As we're throwing sanctions all over the world, what is that doing to the kind of the interconnected parties that are, you know, expecting to move money around if one side of it is defaulting? And it goes back to my question: Why are we only at a thirty-five percent risk of recession if you're starting to see, you're already starting to see defaults? And where does where does that go next? Right. Well, Russia is probably the simple answer to where it goes next. Right. It seems very plausible mm -hmm. that for just sort of mechanical reasons. Uh, Russia may well default, not because they don't have the money, right? They're still selling fossil fuels and getting dollars, but the nature of the sanctions is such that it's hard for them to pay their debts. I mean, you know, more broadly, I think beyond the somewhat narrow question of sanctions and sovereign debt, there's just the broader question of how much debt there is in the world, right? And who owes what to whom? And a classic thing you worry about after a long regime of low interest rates when interest rates start to rise again is who owes what to whom and who's not going to be able to pay uh, when interest rates go up. And then what are the secondary, the knock on effects of that going to be? Right. I mean, I don't know. I don't think anybody really knows the answer to that. I mean, what are the things that you worry about right now when you look out at the kind of global economy? What do you see as the top risks? I mean, you know, it's boring to say oil prices, right? But like the price of oil is extraordinarily high. Uh, interest rates are still bizarrely low, right? I think it's somewhat underappreciated how low interest rates are right now. Like given how high inflation is, given how low unemployment is, the Fed's policy is still very loose. And like, yes, they're going to start. They've already started raising interest rates. They're probably going to raise them faster. But like, it's kind of a wild moment. The combination of super low interest rates, very, very loose, accommodative monetary policy still, extraordinarily low unemployment. That's kind of good news, right? We've kind of forgotten about that because we're sort of more focused uh, on the inflation and then very high inflation and very high oil prices. It's a, it's a nasty set of factors. Uh, you have a podcast called What's Your Problem? In your latest episode, you interviewed the CEO of a major COVID vaccine manufacturer, Moderna, and tell us about that interview. So he's a really interesting guy. His name is Nubar Afan. And the really interesting thing to me about Moderna is it was started by this other company, a company that Nubar founded called Flagship Pioneering. And Flagship kind of awesomely is a company that starts companies. And his, his big idea, he was an entrepreneur in the 80s. And he saw, you know, there's this very kind of 
mythological treatment of entrepreneurs, right? Of like the heroic entrepreneurs. Like that's the wrong way to do it. We need to come up with like a repeatable system for starting companies. And that was really what I focused on when I when I interviewed him for What's Your Problem is how they built this system for starting companies, which I find really fascinating. Hmm. And, you know, how, like, so yeah, what is the history of Moderna? They just kind of ex- seem to have exploded on the scene. Yeah, so, so Nubar started this company flagship in 2000. And then in 2010, he got interested in uh, mRNA, right? This, this molecule that exists in the body that codes for proteins. And it was like, well, if we could figure out how to use mRNA, we could sort of get the body to make anything we want. And the way they do it at flagship is they have this very deliberate process before they start a company. One fun detail is uh, at the beginning, they don't give a company a name. They just give it a number, right? So Moderna started out as LS18. And I asked him, why do you do that? And he said, because I want to make it easy to kill. And if you give something a name, if it's like your dog's name or your favorite Greek god, you're not going to want to kill it, right? But we want the the part of his genius is like, let's kill stuff. Let's let stuff not work so that we can, you know, fail a lot and find what works. It's a really nice, interesting model of of entrepreneurship, but also kind of anti, you know, idealizing entrepreneurship. That's interesting. Well, Jacob, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on the show. We'll have more Rising right after this. So that was that was making the rounds for a couple days with people cringing at it. But and I then, was cringing. And then Ilhan Omar came in with with the win. It's always a big Twitter win if you can come in three or four days after a meme has been rolling around the internet and still kind of land the biggest punch. And so she had, as you guys read there, she has said something like, next time I'm on the plane. I got to hear, I think my family and I should have a prayer session next time I am on a plane. How do you think it will end? You think that was a, you think that was a win? I don't know. It's an epic win. I mean, try to imagine it. Try, try to imagine it. Her, her, she and her family be, start praying on an airplane while it's in the sky. Yeah. How do you, how do you think it would end? Probably, yeah. With the plane on the ground and not in a safe way, probably. Absolute bedlam. I mean, I wouldn't, if people get up on a plane and start sitting, I don't care what they're, if they're making any noise whatsoever, just stop. Sit down, have a drink. Don't I agree. The only commotion on a plane I support is an anti-mask. Uh, 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 no, yeah, but even that's that. Gonna don't get, do that. That's going to turn around. Don't do yeah. that. The goal. The goal. We're on a plane. We're stuck in this this little cage, and the goal is to have as little interaction with each other as possible until it lands and we can get off. Uh, I'm one of those people. Like, if you if somebody sits next to me and they say hi, I'll be like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> no. Rude. I, yeah. I, I put my headphones in. I play my Nintendo Switch for the entire flight. I don't, uh, I, I don't, like, I don't notice anything. If I notice something going on on the plane, that is a policy failure because I'm trying to avoid it. So, so while I share Ilhan Omar's uh, uh, anti-this sentiment, I don't, I, don't, I don't know that I, I wouldn't have taken it in, in that Angle. I don't know. Maybe they would. Maybe people would have been. Well, I, I mean, fine. I think I don't... I th- the point. The point that I took from that was the audience was the forced audience 
was kind of annoyed a little bit. Some of them may, might have been enjoying it. Others were a bit annoyed that this whole spectacle of... Mm-hmm. of and clearly of, this was before, this was a, this was before, like this, this is an old clip, right, of the people singing on the plane. Because oh, there's no mass. There's no mass. So this has to be old. Like you did this, I'm sure if they did this today, they would guitar. be, right? <laughs> they would have been arrested. They would have been put on the no-fly list for doing this, which I oppose, right. and I th- and right. Ilana Moore opposes too. Yeah, and she opposes it. There are. Oh, I, we're hearing from the roosters. There are. I'm watching it. I'm, I don't see any masks on this plane. I'm watching the clip. Do you think there are masks? This is what. Oh, mm. there is one. Yeah, there is one. Weird. Well, this is just wild. Weird. So this, there's no way. This has to well, be, be early mid- pandemic. Or it's a Midwest regional. This has to like, be we're from. Not do, we're not doing this. If this is really from Easter, this is from Easter of this. I can't. I, I don't know what airline. Okay, what airline? Now I'm going the other way. <laughs> yeah. What airline is allowing this? Because I, I want to fly, fly on this one. They're not requiring you to wear a mask because I see like one or two masked people. I wonder if it's from Easter of like 2020, maybe. Were they not? No, everyone was in panic by then. Yeah. When did there was they, nobody on planes then? Yeah. Right. When did masks take hold? Because they, they, they didn't take hold in the first like by, I think first week, of, but they had taken. All right, I, I stand corrected. Maybe this it's is 2021. Anyway, this but I is think, wild. Ninety-five percent of the people in this video are not wearing masks. But I think her point is that the people people aren't scared. That's the point. And so, if she and her family oh. were praying, and particularly if they decided to pray in Arabic. What well, she's what she's saying is that people would absolutely panic and lose their minds, and it's and it's a just a, it's well, just a well, nobody's just singing a, like, Christmas music and hijacked a plane is why is why the, that's a slightly different standard, Ryan. Well, they're, they're, I mean, there have definitely been Christian terrorists. Well, but I don't think there have been any Christian terrorists. But there have plane been hijackings. there have been millions of people who have gotten on planes speaking Arabic who sure, have absolutely. not hijacked planes. Absolutely, but. People, okay, I'm trying to say this in a very non-hateful, non-people who get on planes and make some kind of religious sort of thing with, with something they're going to do on the plane. That's unco- I don't think it's totally crazy for people to have like a, for a little light bulb to go off in their back. Like, Wait, what are you doing right now? Probably some, maybe some people were a little scared of these weird, weirdos playing the guitar. I guess maybe, Again, maybe I would not have been pleased if they, they were doing up this. And but... in Arabic started singing some joyful kind of weirdo song like that and playing the guitar. Right. Uh, you probably still have people panicking. I mean, if Just you're because chan- of Islamophobia is like I know, but still it... deeply ingrained in the airplane experience. Right. Right. I think that's all she was. That's, that's, that, that's yeah. why I thought her joke landed. If you're speaking in another language and you're getting up in, on an airplane and creating some kind of commotion, the airplane is a, is a, is a pressure cooker environment. It it's, a, it's a panic-inducing environment. Whenever someone, someone passes out, you know, a couple uh, rows ahead of you or something, or people rush to the, like, you get, what's going on? I'm scared. I'm worried. So You can't go anywhere. You yeah. can't go anywhere. Yeah. You just have to, again, I recommend... Uh, Nintendo Switch, just tuning, tuning the whole thing out. Um, Would have been hard to tune this one out. Yeah, well, but I'm going to find out what airline this is because this is my airline. Despite this outburst, this is my airline because there are just people, there are people not wearing masks. How do you get, I'm envious of getting away with that because I get called out every time. Would you I listen, get Karen Would you death. listen to this uh, music the entire time if it meant you didn't have to wear a mask? I would. I would. That's how much I hate them, Ryan. That's how much I hate them. Because you could just put the earbuds in and play your Switch. Sure. There sure. you go. All right, we'll have more rising right after this.
Kim, what's on your radar? Well, famed leftist icon Noam Chomsky started trending on social media after he upset liberals for saying Ukraine should negotiate with Russia rather than fight in a bloody war. Noam first sat down with Nathan J. Robinson from Current Affairs, where he said, quote, in this world, there are two options with regard to Ukraine. As we know, one option is a negotiated settlement, which will offer Putin an escape, an ugly settlement. Is it within reach? We don't know. You can only find out by trying, and we're refusing to try, but that's one option. The other option is to make it explicit and clear to Putin and the small circle of men around him that you have no escape. You're going to go to war crimes trial no matter what you do. Boris Johnson just reiterated this. Sanctions will go on no matter what you do. What does that mean? It means go ahead and obliterate Ukraine and go on to lay the basis for a terminal war. Those are the two options. And we're picking the second and praising ourselves for heroism and doing it, fighting Russia to the last Ukrainian. He reiterated these sentiments while talking with Jeremy Scahill from The Intercept. The right question is, what is the best thing to do to save Ukraine from a grim fate, from further destruction? And that's to move towards a negotiated settlement. Uh, there are some simple facts that aren't really controversial. Uh, there are two ways for a war to end. One way is for one side or the other to be basically destroyed. And the Russians are not going to be destroyed. So that means one way is for Ukraine to be destroyed. The other way is some negotiated settlement. If there's a third way, no one's ever figured it out. So what we should be doing is devoting all the things you mentioned, if properly uh, shaped, but primarily moving towards a possible negotiated settlement that will save Ukrainians from further disaster. Now, in both interviews, he quotes respected veteran diplomat and former U.S. Assistant Secretary of Defense, Chaz Freeman, who said the U.S.'s policy is not to negotiate, but to fight to the last Ukrainian. Chomsky said in his interview with Current Affairs, I don't know if you saw it, but a couple of days ago, there was a very important interview by one of the most astute and respected figures in current U.S. diplomatic circles, Ambassador Chaz Freeman, a very important interview. He pointed out that the current U.S. policy, which he bitterly criticized, is to fight Russia to the last Ukrainian. And he gave us an example. President Biden's heroic statement about the war criminal Putin, Biden's counterpart, as a war criminal. And Freeman pointed out the obvious. The U.S. is setting things up so as to destroy Ukraine and lead to a terminal war. Well, the very important interview Noam Chomsky is referring to is one in which Chaz Freeman sat down with Aaron Maté from the Gray Zone back in late March. But we don't know where this is going. And more to the point, um, the United States is not part of any effort to negotiate an end to the fighting um, to the extent that there is mediation going on. It seems to be by Turkey, uh, possibly Israel, uh, maybe China. Um, and that's about it. Um, and uh, the United States is not in the room. Uh, everything we are doing uh, rather than accelerating an end to the fighting and some compromise seems to be aimed at prolonging the fighting, um, assisting the Ukrainian resistance, um, which is a noble cause, I suppose, but 
that will result in a lot of dead Ukrainians as well as dead Russians. Uh, Zelensky is obviously a very intelligent man and he saw what the consequences of being put in what he called limbo would be. Namely, um, Ukraine would be hung out to dry. And the West was basically saying, we will fight to the last Ukrainian for Ukrainian independence, which essentially remains our stand. Um, it's pretty cynical. Chaz Freeman also talks about something Chomsky is experiencing right now, being labeled a Putin puppet for calling for peace. I know people who have been attempted to be objective about this, uh, and, and they're immediately accused of being Russian agents, or uh, that is to say, the price of speaking on this subject is to join the pom-pom girls in a frenzy of support for our position. Uh, and uh, if you're not part of the chorus, you're not allowed to say anything, and not you can't sing. So I think that this has had very injurious effects uh, on Western liberties. And um, it has enforced an almost, um, uh, I won't say it's totalitarian, but it's certainly similar uh, kind of control on freedom of expression uh, and inquiry uh, in, in the West. Uh, it, it's very depressing, really. So uh, Ryan and Robbie, I mean, there, there's definitely a problem here, you know, that Chaz Freeman, I think, is bringing up of, you know, if you say anything other than just fight, fight, fight until the last Ukrainian, then you're labeled a Putin puppet. But one thing Noam said in his interviews is there's a difference between being rational and being humane. And he says, you know, you might think it's rational for Ukraine to continue fighting. Like, for example, of course, they have the right to defend themselves. No one is saying they don't have that right. Do they have a right to, Amer to American and Western uh, weapons and, you know, constant stream of weaponry? That's a discussion to have, but they absolutely have the right to defend themselves. But what is humane for mm -hmm. the Ukrainian people? That is a bigger question um, in this battle. And so, you know, but it's interesting that Noam Chomsky is just getting eviscerated. It, it just kind of shows me that there's so much about what is traditionally liberal values that seem to have just been, I mean, they're just deteriorating. I mean, just free, you know, lack of censorship right now. You've got so many liberals championing censorship. You have liberals championing big tech and big pharma. And now even the military industrial complex just saying, yeah, we need more war, more war, more war. So it's like amazing to me, this kind of transformation that's been happening over the years. But, uh, you know, Ryan, what is your take on Noam getting dragged for calling for peace and saying this is the this is you know, the realistic option is you're just going to have to give Russia something, like it or not, if you don't want to destroy Ukraine. Right. It's, it's kind of delusional. And, and it's, it's actually why I asked Jen Psaki that, that question in the, in the press room a couple of weeks ago that said, you know, what, it, what is the U.S. doing to push negotiations toward a settlement forward? Like, what is the U.S. doing? It, and her, her answer was, well, we're the largest provider of weapons and also hum, humanitarian aid. And, and that, that does seem to be the U.S. strategy here, that they're going to somehow get to a settlement uh, by you know, continuing, this, continuing this war and, and continuing to keep, uh, you know, keep Ukraine in the fight, which I think can make sense in the very beginning. But it's, it's now quickly moving into an almost endless 
war type of situation and fitting in with a new strategy that the U.S. is developing toward Russia. And the Washington Post reported over the weekend, it said the, you know, the Biden administration and its European allies have begun planning for a far different world in which they no longer try to coexist and cooperate with Russia, but actively seek to isolate and weaken it as a matter of long-term strategy. And one of the ways to isolate and weaken a country is to keep it in, in, a, in, a, in a kind of low-grade war in uh, eastern Ukraine uh, endlessly. Yeah, I, I was surprised um, to see Chomsky getting criticized so hard for those remarks. And I don't necessarily, you know, agree with Chomsky probably as much as you do, Ryan, and maybe you, Kim, I don't know, probably on the foreign policy questions. So I might have criticized him for something he would say about this. But, I, right, I thought what he said was perfectly in keeping with, you know, kind of the discussion we've all had on the show along the lines of, you know, what you just outlined. But yes, they have the right to defend themselves. You know, yes, ideally, we want them to, you know, we want Russia to desist from this war, but us just wanting that is not going to make it happen. So what can we, you know, what is actually going to make it happen? What is actually going to bring this to a peaceful resolution? Obviously, a resolution that not everyone is completely happy with, that I'm not completely happy with as someone who wants, you know, Ukraine to keep all its territory. And I want Russia, the authoritarian government of Russia totally defeated and humiliated, but that's just not like realistic. So what is realistic? And, and we have to be we have to be willing to have that conversation. And our government has to has to be willing to to work toward that. And some and they give some indication that, yeah, like you said, Ryan, they're you know, they're looking for something more, something longer, something that will leave a lot more Ukrainians dead. Well, and one thing Noam even said in his interviews is he talked about the Brzezinski uh, plan. I, Brian, I don't know if you're familiar with this one, but he was he mentioned that Hillary Clinton actually brought it up just the other day, saying that, you know, praising the fact that the U.S. was able to bait Russia into a war in Afghanistan and then continued the war forever, prolonged it by arming and training the rebels, which we all know, the Mujahideen, which we all know then eventually became, you know, Osama. It was Osama bin Laden and Al Qaeda. Uh, and so she was actually saying, well, we did it once and this Brzezinski plan was great. And so we're basically championing the idea of doing it again um, in, in Ukraine, which is. And then he quoted somebody, I forgot who it was, another official who said, well, it's not about, uh, you know, it's, it isn't about the Afghan lives, for example, when he's talking about Afghanistan. He says this is about uh, hobbling a world power from expanding. So you have to kind of pick and choose which one's more important to you. And he was essentially saying it's more important to us to hobble the Soviets at the time than it is to then, you know, who cares about Afghan lives? And I think that's exactly what we're seeing here. And by the way, that Chaz Freeman uh, interview was back in mid-March. I think it was like the 22nd or 23rd of March when he said that. And he said, look, the U.S.'s plan is just to, con to, to continue this war and keep supplying weapons. And we've seen now three weeks later, that's absolutely the case. That's We've still been doing that. You know, there hasn't been any real true attempt at a negotiation. It has been Turkey. It has been Israel, has even been China, you know, other countries. Um, and so, you know, Americans, I think, as a public need to get together and, and, and ask, you know, are we really, do we just not care about human life at all? Are we just like, whatever, fight it out, you know, like gladiator style until one of you is dead. And we know which one that's going to be. Uh, but I guess it'll, you know, but it'll weaken Russia for the next however many years. I mean, it's just it's very yeah. it's it's a depressing situation. If, if if the American policy really was to just prolong this war in order to weaken Russia and to not and, and to and to make it very difficult to reach a settlement, 
what they're doing now is what they would do. Like they would they would say, hey, if this war ends, we're going to keep the sanctions on. Uh, they yeah. would say, hey, when this war is over, you know, you're going to be prosecuted as a war criminal uh, and, and you're and keep funneling weapons in in the meantime. Like if if your strategy was to make sure that the war lasted as long as it possibly could, that's precisely what you would do. So if that's not their strategy, then they're going about it completely wrong. The only explanation to me, given that they're not complete idiots, is that they're getting what they want out of this. Yeah. So America needs to kind of understand we traded wars now. You know, we traded Afghanistan for Ukraine. The only difference is at this point, which could change, we don't have troops in uh, Ukraine as we did in Afghanistan. The other other difference, key, is that we're risking nuclear annihilation this time. And then there's that. Right. Right. Yeah. So it it might even be worse. Small detail. But we were in the end. Right. Yeah. But but we. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, thank you for that, Kim. Uh, We'll have more rising right after this. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki discussed her contentious relationship with Fox News reporter Peter Ducey during a live episode of Pod Save America, where Psaki was teed up to answer a question on if Ducey is actually a son of a bee or whether he just plays one on TV. Let's take a listen to her response. We have to talk about Peter Ducey for one second. Sure. Okay. Okay. Is he a stupid son of a or does he play a stupid son of a on TV? Okay. Um, well, um, he works for a network. Okay. That um, provides people with questions that nothing personal to any individual, including Peter Ducey, but might make anyone sound like a stupid son of a So following the backlash from her remarks, Saki tweeted out, quote, the full video shows I also told a story about Peter's grace last night, made very clear I was not being critical of him or any reporter at Fox. He's doing his job, I'm doing mine, we debate, we disagree, etc. Um, which, I don't know, I'm kind of fine with, except for the hypocrisy of... You know, any other uh, when it was a Trump, if it was a Trump White House official attacking the media, this would be handled right. as, you know, the An end of the on world. The free press. Right. right. Attack on the free press, which is so which was always ridiculous. But just as that was ridiculous and it is fair to call out the hypocrisy, I think it would be ridiculous to treat this as like the end of the world. They have a collegial sparring relationship more for entertainment than anything else. Who cares? Yeah, and you could see her trying to like thread the needle there because she's trying to make that that cackling audience of progressives happy by like serving them up some right. red meat, uh, while at the same time you know be respectful to somebody that she works with every day. And so the way that she tried to thread it was by saying the network would make anybody who works for it sound stupid, mm-hmm. which I think actually is her genuine opinion too. Like, I think that's probably tr- like she probably feels that way. It doesn't matter how smart you are. If, if you're ta- what she's saying is that if you're taking marching orders from Fox News, that you're going to be made to look like an idiot on a regular basis. Uh, a, a lot of his questions, though, I think, are completely fair and don't make him. Uh, right. Especially look, the, what was the like one we were talking idiot. about last time that they were jumping at down? Oh, it was it was because uh, Biden said, uh, you know, if, if there's a chemical weapons attack in Russia, we will respond in kind. 
And so he's like, so does that mean you're threatening a chemical weapons attack? Because that's what the English language means in that right. situation. And they're like, oh, you stupid SOB. Right. You know, that's not what that, right. you know, you're an, you're, you're an idiot. That's not what that means. So, no, in, in that case, like, in other words, any, any confrontation is going to make, is going to be mm-hmm. dubbed as stupid. And, and this is going to be, this is how we're going to have, this is how it's going to be the rest of our lives, I think. You'll have Republican spokespeople at MAGA conferences making fun of MSNBC reporters and, and the whole crowd yucking it up and laughing right. just the same way that the Pod Save audience so is laughing. It's kind of a performative thing for entertainment. Right. What do you think, Kim? I just think this is an indictment on how we've devolved as as a democracy and as a society. You know, I mean, look, uh, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican administration, you are supposed to represent all Americans. And that's just not really the way it is anymore. The fact that when Democrats are in office, they say, oh, well, Fox News, you know, anybody who works for that network, you know, attacking them. Uh, and, and we know the same thing happened a lot under the Trump administration towards like CNN and MSNBC, for example. So there's this obvious partisan, uh, you know, bias, ob- obviously. And we know that there's this partisan bias with the media. But that is a problem. That is a huge problem. It shouldn't be that way. And, this, and in the same vein, the administrations should not be so partisan as well, where they don't, they no longer represent half of America. They're just like, well, whatever, you deplorable people. Uh, you believe in this fake news ne- network that should be taken off the air. What, you know, what, you know the yeah. sentiment that many of them feel. So I just think this is sad. I mean, more than anything, it's sad that a government, uh, that a Biden administration official would disparage an entire news network. Uh, you know, and look, I, I get it. I got my issues with Fox News just like I do with CNN. I understand that. But just the fact that it's happening and then the fact that the media is also so partisan. It's just, right. I just don't know where we go from here. How well, do we repair this? Right. I don't, I don't like asymmetries here, right? The, the Fox and, and is not very friendly to the Biden administration, which is totally right. fine. So I don't think the Biden administration has some great responsibility to be any more polite in the press briefings than it is being currently, you know, given how much mutual hostility there is, which I also felt the same way, really, about the confrontations between the Trump administration and the media. Really, the the unanimity of opinion among our media class, right, in terms of what we see in Ukraine, the, the Ukraine conflict with, you know, all the people in those press briefing trying to trick Saki into, you know, saying, we've, well, we've already started World War. Here's the line. And then, ha we crossed it. World War Three. Here we come, baby. You know, seems like the most concerning media trend um, of all. But but one there where there's kind of some, you know, where they're all on the same side. Um, well, but don't you think it should be like the administration should be higher in their thinking they should elevate themselves a bit and almost like a school teacher to a class of kids you know a school teacher doesn't say well there's the bully you know we don't like that bully or those the f kids they all get they get bad grades and here are my teacher's pets and they get good grades you know you're supposed to as a teacher rise above and just treat them all the same no matter how they treat you no matter what kind of whether you agree with their opinions that they write about in their essays whatever it is i mean maybe that's ideal i just i don't think the I, I would never think the government officials are like elevated and above it all, and right. you know that it, that's just so wildly unrealistic. Like their incentives well, okay. to be nasty and bad are. Well, then, so is it okay that Hillary Clinton called 
uh, people uh, voting for Trump a basket of deplorables. Like that's the type of if we're if we're going to say, well, then right. politicians, I think it, it doesn't a, matter, then that shouldn't matter. I think it was a tactical mistake for her to do that. It's clearly what she believes, though. But I mean, it's, but I think you're telling the I truth. Think that, yeah, these the, the government or these leaders of these political parties are expressions of political tendencies and political movements. And so in that sense, they should say what they believe. And if they think that Fox News is garbage, I, I think it's okay for them to say that. I, th I don't think they should censor Fox News. I don't think they should you know, mistreat them. They should get equal access in the you know, White House press briefing room. Right. But if they want to pick fights with Fox News, pol pick political fights with them, or if Trump wants to pick political fights with CNN and MSNBC, I feel like that's politics and that should be okay. Uh, but because are these I think political fights or are these personal? Because they don't feel political. They're not debating ideas. They're never well, debating ideas. We're kind of beyond that because we're in a, this period of culture war that has supplanted actual right. kind of class right. politics. And that's what I'm saying is a you problem. Know. Yeah, it, it definitely is. It's just where we are. The, right. the question to me, when Jen Psaki is an MSNBC host, is she going to be able to have Steve Ducey on so they can continue this, like, Theatrical sparring. Peter. Peter Deuce. What, who did Steve, I say? Steve's the father, right? Oh, sorry. He's also Fox oh, News yeah. oh, my God. Um, anchor. Yeah. Uh, oh, I was always confused. Was, uh, There's two of them. It's he, his how's son. he getting from there to the show? <laughs> so, yeah. So have the kid on uh, so they can keep sparring. Or maybe the Fox News contract says you can't go on these other networks. That would be I mean, beneficial if she... That, that would be the one kind of good thing she that, could do. Uh, it would be... Can you imagine... I mean, it wasn't so long ago where they would actually have people uh, on, you know, from the other side on an MSNBC or a CNN show. Now they'll only have you on if you're like a reformed, like, you know, right. anti-Trump. Yeah. Trump is the greatest threat to us ever, et cetera. Um, yeah. As long as you all agree that the left is the problem, then you're welcome on all cable networks. Yeah. Well, the left has some, has some problems. <laughs> they do. <laughs> All right. Well, tomorrow on Rising, Rachel Bovard joins us to discuss the news of the day. And labor writer Kim Kelly will be here to discuss her new book on the labor movement. And Brianna sure Joy Gray will be here. Yes, she'll be here. She'll, yeah. she'll be here right. Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And no. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday of next week. And Tuesday, Wednesday, We've got Thursday a two-week week. plan, people. We do have a two-week It's week a very plan. rare occurrence where we're told ahead of time what yes. is going on. Uh, minute to minute, but uh, you're going to be uh, hosting a show on Friday now right. yeah. with, you want yeah. to announce? With Emily Jashinsky. Yay. People, Very cool. A Very good old cool. friend of the show, Emily. She'll yeah. be, so she'll be here Friday morning. So Fridays will now be Ryan and Emily, and Emily, that's yeah. pretty. And we'll sort and out so. the other four days. We'll sort yes. out the yeah. rest at some point. Because that's a lot could. of work for you, Ryan. I mean, if that you were to do all work. five days, that's, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. a lot of so, work. Yeah. So, so Brianna will be here. Three days. Great. Three days this week, three days next week, and we'll see what we can do going forward. Yeah. Awesome. Well, good luck with that new show. I think that's going to be really great. Can't wait to watch it. Um, all right. Fun. So be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you guys never miss any of our content. Also, so that you can make sure that you get the notification about Ryan and Emily's new show on Fridays, which is going to be very interesting to watch and listen to. Those two always get into some really great... Uh, I, I really always enjoyed watching the two of you, Ryan, because... You guys would get into really more in-depth stuff, uh, and you guys are both so knowledgeable about things. So I think that'll be great to watch on Fridays. So um, be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you don't miss that. Also, make sure you go and check out our podcast so that you can hear us anytime, uh, everywhere you're going. 
you can hear our voices. <laughs> it sounded almost sinister. Yeah. Wherever we'll you go, our head. voices will follow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's All right, guys. Thank you so much for watching, and we'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye. See you later.